0: Diane, I'm here at the Victorian front where the U.S. has cut off electricity, water, and gas to the tiny four-bedroom republic. The situation is very tense and extremely dangerous. It's only a matter of time before, uh... Oh, my God, they've opened fire. All right, looks like things are getting very heated here. This is not a safe place to be.
1: And now, Sports.
2: I won a hundred bucks and she came in and took a picture while I'm sitting on the toilet with a big smile on
3: my face. All right, guys, welcome back to this week's uh, Grab America show. Thanks for joining us. How's it? How you been, Grab? Yeah, doing good, buddy. A little torch from Phoenix.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wanted to add a couple stories to talk to you about from uh, from Scottsdale.
3: You stayed late and went st- went to Sedona, didn't you?
1: Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have any stories from Sedona, but...
3: Oh. Uh, well, we'll get those in a minute. We're going to be talking... Uh, we got a special double episode tonight. We're going to be talking with uh, Brad Burge from Maps, and then we'll be talking with Ray Borges, uh, author of The Succession of Mill Valley, kind of a political satire. Uh, but, yeah, we were in Phoenix roasting away. Yep. yeah. That was the hottest I've been in in probably like ten years. Really? Wow. I've yeah. been to Mexico and places like that, but the humidity helps out a lot. Yeah, and there it was just like fucking crazy.
1: It's supposed to be better when it's dry, though.
3: Like bullshit.
1: <laughs> so hey,
3: they managed to sunburn an Indian.
1: So were you? Were you there when uh, when, Kev's phone flipped across the kitchen? No, you weren't there. So I want you, I want your take on this. So something strange happened, right? It was not just a couple little tiny stories here, nothing big, but we were listening to, to music on buddy's phone, hooked up to one of those like portable speaker things. Right. And we were all kind of gathered around the side of the kitchen. And I saw it out of the corner of my eye, but Kevin was standing right there and his phone shot across, fell down and shot across the floor. I'm not sure if it fell first or if it just shot off the off the counter, but it ended up in a corner of the kitchen, and we all kind of noticed it and said, "What the fuck happened there? Like, how did the phone?" So the we were joking around about just
3: it. Shook oh. it off the counter and yeah, then it fell on the floor. Yeah, do you had think to so? Hit the edge and oh
1: shot up. yeah, I thought of that right when I told you, but
3: I thought of that just now. I'm he just had goosebumps.
1: Bumps. He had goosebumps, and like these people aren't people that talk about like strange stuff like this. These but people. These people. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, he had goosebumps. It was pretty crazy. I thought it was pretty weird.
3: I'm going to give you a 2.5 on the synchronicity scale. That's That's not not really a synchronicity, synchronicity. but we can use the scale. I have one of those for you
1: later. Okay, the second story, golfing. Beautiful course, beautiful fairway. And I hear this buzzing overhead. So I went from one side to the other. And I look up expecting to see something, right? And there's nothing there. But it sounded like a 1,000 bugs or bees or something buzzing overhead and everybody on my team saw me do this so they go oh did you see a ufo or something like they so
3: they didn't hear they the sound. Knew,
1: no they didn't hear the sound they're about like 20 like yards away They're
3: flying close over your head
1: oh it sounded like a lot of bugs like i thought there was a craft even or something but i was hoping to see something but there was nothing there
3: you thought there was a craft so they were right to judge you <laughs> And they
1: said, Oh, you see UFOs? I had to say, No, I didn't see anything, guys. But I just heard this My buzzing. So, uh,
3: kind of reminded me of. Do you maybe remember? A three on that do you remember one? I don't, I don't know. Terry not to that. Anywhere near five hey, on any of these.
1: It was a personal auditory hallucination at the least.
3: So. Or a bug flew right over your head, so it sounded like a lot. I think so. Yeah. Especially if he's flying left to right, because then he's going from one ear to the other.
1: But wow. I would have seen him, though. I don't know. Shit's weak. It reminded me of when Terry Tabanda was talking about that and their C-SETI experiences where they heard buzzing like that going around.
3: Not convinced. Thanks for the stories, so. though. Okay. You look disappointed.
1: I am, as usual. I don't know why I even try.
3: What's the synchronicity? Maybe that'll be better.
1: Okay. Listening to Graylian report last night live for once, I was able to do that, Okay. In the meantime, I'm typing an email back to one of our listeners, Neil, who sent us that big email. And I was telling him how, like, hey, I like a lot of these topics, too. And I wrote down Zeitgeist. I typed in Zeitgeist, and I decided not to put it in there. So I deleted it. And as soon as I deleted it, a second after I deleted it, Micah's guest said the word
3: Zeitgeist. Hmm. What do you think? Hearsay. That's pretty good.
1: I mean, Zeitgeist, you don't. People don't say the word zeitgeist very often, and for me time, to, like, zeitgeist. delete it... What?
3: Zeitgeist? Zeitgeist? I'll yeah. give you a 6. A 6 out of
1: 10? 6.5. I told him at Graylian, I asked for a 7. I think somebody gave me an 8.
3: Yeah, well, that's... Uh, I don't I think Joey's is better. I don't think so. Yeah, I'm going to give Joey's a seven and yours a six and a half.
1: <sighs> See, I think that uh, it's always it's always more profound for the person who has it.
3: But I'm the unbiased judge. So, Joey, you might as well tell us yours.
4: All right. Well, so the other day my dad was going out for groceries and whatnot, and he was looking for his wallet before he left the house, and he couldn't really find it. So he... Figured it was in the truck or somewhere in the truck, so he's like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll find it on the way." And he went, and he calls me from the store, and he's like, um, "Unfortunately, I don't have my wallet with me. Can you check somewhere in the house?" And right as I was hanging up the phone, he even heard it. it um, his pager went off, and it was on the weekend, so it, there wasn't a work call. It was nothing like that. It just went off like five beeps. So I followed it, found his pager, and his wallet was sitting right beside his phone. Or his pager. Sorry,
3: who still has a pager?
4: I was just gonna say that. Yeah, like it, it's Regar- regardless of the strength yeah. of the
1: synchronicity. Like, is this a time slip from the '80s? Or the the time been them for, they've been using synchronicity. Uh, they've
4: been using them forever. Just started using text more often, but yeah, they still use the pager. Oh my god. I'm giving
3: his a seven. Yours is a six. Uh, if, ever, if anyone disagrees with me, you can email uh, Graham.
1: I would have thought it would been better if the, if the wall and the page were hidden and that was the only way you could find it was via the sound,
4: but well, it was like in his work bag, like in the pocket oh. of his work bag. I figured maybe I'd go check there and it that's was, a sure bit better. was there.
1: Okay.
3: Yeah. I think you're down to us. You guys are both down to fives. It was Any- in the work bag.
1: Anyways, I want to thank uh, Neil for his email. It was pretty comprehensive, recommending lots of cool guests and topics that he'd like to have. And that's, uh, that's cool because it's, it's, we have so many guests lined up and so many that we're interested in. It's nice to have people tell us who they want to have on. So it gives us a bit, bit of direction and we can kind of focus on some of those things. And he pointed out this, this thing that I can't get out of my head now. When you look at the Easter Island, Moai, look at the forehead. And what does it look like?
3: Magic mushrooms.
1: <laughs>
3: now that he said that.
1: Every time I look at it now it's just a big 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 ass mushroom on the top of his head. It looks more like oh, a yeah. mushroom
3: no, than know. A statue it statue. Totally like a mushroom, I know. Well we'll we'll uh put that picture uh somewhere so you guys can see it. But yeah, it's super cool. And then uh, he uh, he wanted me to try out a Welsh accent.
1: Does he does he have Welsh rarebit for dinner?
3: Hello. Ever since I started this podcast many people have commented on my accent. Oh, it's Welsh.
1: They'd probably say that was Cockney.
3: <laughs> yeah, that was all Cockney. <laughs> well, anything for a listener.
1: Yeah. Anyways, thanks again, Neil. That was great. Uh, great email. And we'll have some of those guests on for sure. Well sounds like that's time for graham's profound ufo quote of the week i got two little short ones since it's a short uh intro Always
3: two <laughs> let's do we'll do more quotes since it's a short just intro. two
1: just two okay this one is uh maximum security exists concerning the subject of ufos that's it that's from cia director alan dulles in 1955 now that guy was a, pro, a prolific CIA director, like he was around the intelligence community for decades, so
3: I think that's pretty relevant. That was the shortest UFO quote ever.
1: I know. That's why I got another one. It's shorter? Yeah. No, not quite.
3: Holy shit! That's a fine quote. <laughs> I have By to. Everyone sc- who ever seen a UFO said that.
1: Holy shit! Holy shit! Yeah. What is that? I know what, good I work. know what I saw. Okay. I have discussed this matter with the affected agencies of the government, and they are of the opinion that it is not wise to publicize this matter at this time. That's from Senator Richard Russell, head of the Armed Services Committee, following his sighting of a UFO during an official trip to the Soviet Union again in 1955. Rick Russ. Oh, there's another dick. Dick Russ.
3: Dick Russ. Dick Russell. <laughs> Add that to our dick collection. <laughs> And so we're gonna jump into our, our chat with our money bomb winner uh, pretty quick, and then we I think we'll jump right into our chat with Brad right after that. Uh, Brad Burge, of course, he's uh, I think he's marketing director or something like that for Maps.
1: Yeah, he's a director of communications for Maps.
3: What's Maps stand for again?
1: Multidisciplinary Association, of Psychedelic Studies. Yeah, so Brad Burge is a director of communications and marketing and he was interning there since 2009 and and now he's doing that he's uh, on projects pertaining to pharmacology drug policy and psychedelic therapy it's uh great to chat with him about all this stuff
3: yeah and it looks like we might be able to have him back kind of periodically to fill us in on on where they're at yeah hopefully so uh that's always fun is there anything else to jump into before we get into that i can't think so eh?
1: No, we'll just mention it in our in our chat with the uh, the money bomb winner.
3: Audible trial, uh, slash America. I can't even remember. We should look into that. Fuck Amazon. But if you're gonna go to Amazon, you might as well use the link. And uh, so here we're gonna jump into the chat with the money bomb winter winner, winner, winter, 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 winner, winner, winter, winter, winner. Winter winter. Our money bomb winter winner. Our money bomb winter ending winner.
1: Okay, that's good. And then our inaugural money
3: bomb. Went. Inaugural.
1: Yes, the first money bomb.
3: First money bomb. First gray American money bomb.
1: We gave what? hundred bucks.
3: Hundred bucks.
1: Yeah. And what do we get out we of it?
3: We got ninety with the exchange. Uh, I think uh, we 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 got like thirty-five bucks. So
1: that'll cover some of our expenses.
3: Yeah, that'll cover a few. It's a good start. So uh, yeah, after that we'll have a quick break and uh, jump into our first half of our double header Okay, guys, we're here with uh, the winner of the first Grime American uh, Money Bomb, the in- inaugural. Um, uh, <laughs> Galen. Galen. Yeah, so congratulations, Galen. Thanks for coming on the show. You won 100 bucks, I think? Yeah,
2: yeah. It was nice. <laughs> right on.
1: So do you, can you give us any idea what you're going to do with it?
2: Well, I, uh, I use some of it to take my girlfriend out to eat. And then the rest of it is probably going to go towards fishing gear.
1: <laughs> fishing gear. Sweet. So did, what did you tell? Did you tell your girlfriend that you won money off this podcast called The Great America Show? Like, what did she say about I, that?
2: I I did. Um, I actually told um, everyone I work with because um, <laughs> she had taken a picture, and I was in the bathroom. And I said, and babe, I want 100 bucks." And she came in and took a picture while I'm sitting on the toilet with a big smile on my face. <laughs> <laughs> I ended was sending it to people So uh, I had to explain the story to everyone So you guys got your name out there around here
3: <laughs> Right on yeah. Maybe someone the, else can win Yeah, I don't
1: someone know, if the, yeah, I don't know if the doctors will be into the show at all But
2: No, goodness We've got a few
1: doctors scary. on the
3: show Yeah
1: So have you had any weird like experiences with people in the hospital Having like uh, shared uh, near-death experiences or anything like that?
2: Um, there's a lot of weird stuff. I can't really go into too much, but, um, there's definitely something to, um, afterlife and stuff like that, so.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we gotta do, we gotta do a show on the afterlife. It's, it's, it's it's becoming pretty, you know, pretty big. Lots of research going on. Lots of scientific evidence. So we should, we should do that, eh, Darren? Didn't we do that with (laughs) psilocybin? Yeah. So what? So th- it's great to have you as a listener on the show. There, what do you what do you think of it? What what attracts you to uh, to the podcast?
2: Um, basically the, the broad spectrum of guests, and then some of the, some of the um, shows, like the one with Jim Elvich, Like I went back and listened to that like three times because I was just like, wait, what? You know, like it had to sink in, and I, it was just like mind blowing. And I kind of like that part of it, the part where you get something, some new information, and you're just like, wait, what? what?" You know, you have to think about it for a minute. And Plus, you guys are always really on point with questions and comic relief.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, man. That's good to know that uh, that you like the wide range of guests, because that's kind of... Uh, I've always had a wide variety of interests, so it kind of fits with, with my, like, sort of learning style and, and the things I'm interested in. So it's kind of good to know that that's working for some people anyways. And, and yeah, that Jim Elvidge one, man, Darren Darren was itching to get that guy on. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. yeah, he blows your mind.
3: Wait, i fucking yeah. next week.
1: Why? What's next uh-huh.
3: week's? Amit. Uh, Amit Oh, Amit
1: Goswami. Goswami, yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, that oh, one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wish I had a rewind button while we were doing the interview. Like, wait, yeah. what? What? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's hard to keep up, man. We got lost a couple times with him.
3: Yeah. Well, uh, congratulations, uh, Galen, again, and thanks for coming on the show. And we hope you, uh, you and your girlfriend enjoy enjoy dinner on the Grimerica show.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
3: So, of course, uh, you, guys. everyone else can get in on the Money Bomb. Uh, you can check out the details there at grimerica.ca slash moneybomb. Uh, you can enter either by making a donation or there's a couple options there with sending in a flyer or a postcard uh, with no donation required. So thanks again, Galen. Congratulations, and uh, thanks for listening.
2: Thank you, gentlemen.
3: All right. Take care. Okay, guys, uh, with us this afternoon in here in Great America, we're going to be talking with uh, Mr. Brad Burge of the MAPS organization. Uh, he's going to tell us all about that and uh, took some time with his busy schedule. But first, how's it going this afternoon, Graham?
1: Hey, Darren. Doing pretty good, buddy. Looking forward to chatting with us. Brad of MAPS, which is what? Multi, multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. Is that what we have here, Brad?
5: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. It's a mouthful. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, it, uh, it also grabs attention. You know, we, uh, use the term psychedelic. Right on. Well, yeah. Welcome there. to the show, Brad. Yeah.
3: Uh, I actually found Great out about uh, the organization when I picked up Dennis McKenna's book, uh, Brotherhood for the Screaming Abyss. It had the, the card in there and I subscribed to the newsletter and I've been kind of, uh, Going down the rabbit hole ever since. Can you, uh, for our listeners that don't know, could you give us a, give us a quick rundown of what exactly Maps uh, is and what what sort of your mission statement is?
5: Yeah, sure thing. Um, uh, you can think about us really as a nonprofit pharmaceutical company that's doing a lot of public education about the treatments that we're developing. Um, that's kind of one angle of our research. The other angle is much broader use and education about the beneficial uses of psychedelics and marijuana, or I guess cannabis, as it's increasingly being called, um, and tends to be called in Canada, I think. And... um, so we've, uh, we've been around since 1986. Uh, we were founded by my boss, who's our founder and executive director, Rick Doblin. He has a PhD from Harvard in public policy and uh, has been focused since 1986 on opening up possibilities for real research, really good research into the beneficial uses of psychedelics and marijuana. So we've been conducting clinical research with the FDA and now with Health Canada and other regulatory agencies around the world, looking at the beneficial uses of psychedelics in a way that kind of uh, flies in the face of a lot of the negative education and propaganda that a lot of us have heard over the last 10, 20, 30, 40, <laughs> way too many years.
3: Yeah, it seems like that's uh, one of the biggest crimes that, that you know we've faced in the last little while is our... Is how we've been, you know, these substances that can help us in so many ways have been kind of blocked.
5: Yeah. You know, it's it's a little scary. You know, if you look at the history of cultural development worldwide, there have been times when huge advances in understanding and great technologies and ways of using those technologies have just disappeared as a result of some form of takeover or cultural prohibition. I'm thinking about the use of mathematics and astronomy by the early Arabic cultures and how a lot of that was forgotten or eliminated in some of those wars thousands of years ago and had to be redeveloped in a lot of places. Um, And in the same way, in the 20th century, we've had uh, what uh, one researcher in an upcoming book by Tom Schroeder referred to as the undiscovery (laughs) of psychedelics, where uh, we had this great expansion of interest in them, not just for therapeutic use in the 1950s, 1960s, and even 1970s, but then increasingly for spiritual uses and other therapeutic uses uh, in the West. So um, we had that expansion of, of interest, and then all of a sudden in the 1960s and 1970s, you start getting these um, huge cultures that are using psychedelics in more irresponsible ways, and it gets into the news in the wrong way. And so we had this clamping down of research, and that really froze really froze uh, the development of these treatments and these spiritual tools That's for a long time. That's kind of...
3: Um... That's kind of what I was. What I was going to ask next: Do you think? Do you look at it like uh, we we talk to some people who will say, you know, it's a conspiracy, and and you know, Big Brother knows that these what these substances can do, and as far as
1: opening up our consciousness, opening
3: up our consciousness, and opening us up to you know maybe different ways of doing things or maybe prioritizing things a little different. Do you give any credence to something like that, or do you look at it more as just like fear based? That they panicked, and uh, uh,
5: yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of fear behind it. Um, I think, um, well, yeah, I, 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 working in maps and working working with psychedelic research. A lot of our work is uh, negotiating with regulators and establishing good relationships with the individuals who who review protocols, the scientists who look at the research. And um, the more I learn about governments, the less I believe <laughs> in conspiracies. Um, you know, governments are not these monolithic entities that move as a unit. There may be, you know, sections of the government that are that are that are, you know, trying to collaborate in some way to achieve particular things in underhanded ways. But I think, by and large, uh, governments have a hard time getting along with themselves, and uh, it can be hard to get agreement even within certain agencies about what is or is not legitimate and what is or is not good research. So I don't think there's any large conspiracies blocking this from moving forward. What's blocking it from moving forward is just this intense um, cultural stigma. And when I say blocking from moving forward, it's Mm -hmm. not that we're not making huge advances. We've got uh, studies going on around the world. We have... uh, multiple studies looking at MDMA uh, for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. We're looking at LSD and ibogaine and ayahuasca, and other researchers are looking at psilocybin and other ones. So the research is moving forward, and the stories are getting out, Um, but what's preventing even more expansion of that and even more acceptance is just this long-entrenched cultural stigma that prevents us from getting access to major funding sources. And um, that's where we're at right now. So that's what we're trying to push against.
1: It's still hard for me to to not to believe that that stigma is started from some sort of conspiracy, you know, like people back in the early, you know, like yeah. the, the 1930s or whatever. That
5: <clears throat> absolutely, absolutely. That I think, that original thing, I, I would agree there, is that the original drive to demonize psychedelics, and starting with marijuana, Uh, in the 1930s um, really was a conspiracy. It really was a few people in a boardroom saying, hey, we need to make these things look as demonic as possible. And they threw a lot of funding and resources towards that. But I think... But, you know, maybe that conspiracy has just been so effective that it's just permeated our culture and influenced all of our laws and our prison system and the way that research goes and the way that education happens about psychedelics. And so it's not so much a directed conspiracy anymore, but a cultural trauma that we now have to find is, a way is to get Is
3: cannabis over. kind of the tip of the sword then? Like, is that like, from your guys' perspective, is cannabis, you know, it's kind of the easiest one to sneak in the door and people are opening up to it, you know, it seems like on an almost an hourly basis. Um, That's got to be like a huge, uh, the things that are happening today in that forum must be huge in your guys' opinion.
5: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Just like cannabis, the prohibition of cannabis in the 1930s was a wedge for broader prohibition, and it's what made it possible for the criminalization of other drugs, including psychedelics. Uh, I think that the medical cannabis movement has also opened up the door for additional research into Schedule I drugs. And that's that's because the stigma is eroding through the research. And it's also because, if you look at it from the flip side, marijuana is also the linchpin of the global war on drugs in the sense that it's uh, still the one that's primarily stigmatized, even though so many people, millions and millions of people use it. And um, it's also providing a great deal of the funding for the cartels, the criminal cartels, which function Mm -hmm. as a result of prohibition that enables them to continue their work. So the longer that cannabis in particular is illegal, the more resources those cartels are going to have and the less cultural motivation we're going to have to develop cannabis and these other drugs into legitimate treatment. Do you guys
1: worry at all about the abuse of uh, marijuana? Like we did a show uh, with, um, was it? Scott Kevin Booth, I think, Kevin who Booth, did the yeah. documentaries on the drug war and stuff, and we were talking about dabbing. I think it's called in Colorado, and people that are, oh yeah, you know, extracting like high, high potent uh, marijuana, and and then basically, you know, using it, and it's like equivalent of like a hundred hits or whatever. Like, are you worried about about that sort of ruining ruining the advancement of the uh, legalization or the?
5: Well, it certainly doesn't help uh the the fact that we have these high thc strains and uh we're 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 seeing more abuse of high thc strains that certainly doesn't help the overall image of cannabis because by and large most people aren't looking for those extremes a lot of people find therapeutic benefit from lower thc strains or from other delivery systems like see i could
3: look at that from the glass (laughs) half full perspective and say hey let them let them cook it down as much as they want and get the THC as high as they want and look at, it's like these guys can make this super pot and it still can't kill them.
5: (laughs) Right, 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 right. It's definitely more unsafe. And uh, I've seen here in California at, um, at cannabis trade shows and so on, where they actually have medical cannabis available for people with a license to use it, they now have signs up. I've seen some harm reduction signs saying, "Hey, if you're going to use Dabs, these high THC concentrates, um, make sure that you're sitting down, um, because the major problem is when people are using it and they stand up and then they fall down <laughs> because they're not expecting expecting the, the the intensity of the experience." And another problem with that is that too often Marijuana is confused with THC and that users think that uh, just the better cannabis is, is, is higher THC. And a lot of people forget that there's actually all of these other cannabinoids in the plant that come along with it when you're smoking the plant or when you're using the plant in another way. So we're trying to do research right now. We're trying to get this started here in the U.S., looking at medical cannabis for symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, and we're trying to get access to this high CBD, this high cannabidiol strain, uh, which will ameliorate or balance the effects of THC, and we're thinking might actually give better symptom relief for people.
1: So what are some of the latest studies that you guys have going on now with uh, psychedelics?
5: we actually are just about to get a study started in Vancouver. Uh, We've um, been working to initiate this study looking at MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for post-traumatic stress disorder in Vancouver. Uh, There we're going to administer MDMA combined with psychotherapy to people with PTSD and see if we can get some of the really excellent results we've already found in our U.S. and Swiss studies. uh, Is that
3: kind of the leader leader in PTSD treatment? Is that what what we're kind of leaning towards, that MDMA is kind of going to be the top choice?
5: Well, we don't know if it'll be the top choice. There are still treatments that work for a lot of people. Um, uh, Some people find success with existing pharmaceutical medications and existing psychotherapies and other approaches, but there's still a significant minority, up to a third even, of PTSD patients that don't respond to those treatments. So we're looking at MDMA-assisted psychotherapy right now as uh, not a last-ditch, maybe even a first-ditch, because it's so effective, but um, definitely an effective treatment for people who don't respond to other approaches, Uh, And also people who just don't want to take drugs every day for the rest of their life. Uh, We're finding that what's happening with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is after just a couple of sessions, taking the drug just a couple of times combined with a series of psychotherapy sessions, that you can get these lasting lasting changes. So something's happening with this treatment. That yeah. it's not just masking symptoms, it's not just covering it up, but it's really changing people's relationship with their illness.
3: Have you guys done uh, anything, um, like I, I hear a lot about bipolarism these days as being a big up-and-comer. Is that our up-and-coming kind of epidemic almost? Um, is that something you guys have any any kind of studies you've ever done, any, any looking into?
5: We haven't done any actual studies looking at bipolar disorder and psychedelic treatments. We do collect case accounts of people who have experienced benefits um, uh, for their bipolar or other psychiatric conditions using psychedelics. We do collect those on our website. And we do have some case accounts of people who have found success there. And the reason we collect those is because if in the future we're able to actually conduct a clinical study, those reports can be used as evidence for why we think it might work. So we haven't actually looked at that, but I have heard of uh, a number of people finding it to be beneficial. In fact, my own experience, um, uh, if you like to hear it, uh, and kind of what motivated to uh, get involved in um, in, in, in this work is that I was on prescription pharmaceuticals and diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was very young, when I was only 11 years old, actually. Um, so I, I, I believe that there are fundamental problems with labeling kids, um, at an early age. Um, and I feel that, um, you know, uh, my experience alone was that I was, I was taking mood stabilizers for, for a long time. I was prescribed mood stabilizers when I was 11 and took those until I was 21. Uh, it wasn't until I, I was in college and I had a single experience with LSD um, that uh, pointed out to me or in which I realized that there was nothing actually wrong with me, that I had been told that I would need these drugs to balance my mood for the rest of my life, and that while my experience might be extreme, I might uh, you know, experience emotions strongly, um, that I didn't need drugs to make it better. So I promptly thereafter fired my psychiatrist and started engaging in, 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 more, in more physically active exercises and uh, finding other ways, um, uh, 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 spiritual practices and physical practices where I could find other ways to balance my, my, my emotions and, and, and to kind of cultivate the sense that there wasn't actually anything wrong with me. So that showed me that, you know, just after one experience, you, know, albeit illegal experience um, you can have these immense changes in perspective that can prompt you to make larger changes in your life. So the changes, as I see it, that are happening with psychedelic therapy aren't about the drug, but they're about the possibilities that the experience of the psychedelic makes apparent to somebody and uh, what people then do with that opportunity.
3: So do you guys, um, like you guys, obviously you, you've got to go at it from a, a mostly medical perspective perspective. Just because it makes everything a lot easier, but um, it's hard to deny the spiritual aspect of some of these things. Like, I would, I would take, uh, you know, a couple grams of dried mushrooms was equivalent to, you know, church for three months, or something like that. Like, um, how long do you think it'll be before we start seeing it being not just people with some sort of disorder, or not just people who are on their deathbed? How long before it's you know, I've been depressed lately, or or not even depressed, just I want to expand.
5: Yeah, that's going to be a little while, I think. We're, um, unfortunately, um, because there's been so much stigma. Um, the reason that we're doing the research this way and working with FDA and working with Health Canada, European Medicines Agency, is because, of really the problem of the difference between a medicine and a drug is 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 how we think about those and drugs are things that you shouldn't take because they'll harm you Um, but a medicine is something that is good for you and what we're pushing really is it's all about how you use it you know it's about using our tools carefully and using them responsibly and for specific purposes. So by opening that up, by conducting that research and showing that there can be beneficial uses within certain contexts, what we hope to do is destabilize the entire global war on drugs, which assumes that the only good way to use these drugs is not at all. That the only way to treat these drugs from a political standpoint is to criminalize their behavior and put people in prison for using them and what that does is it shuts down research it shuts down expansiveness and creative potential and it puts otherwise innocent people in prison Um, so this research is you can think about it as a wedge uh, as a legitimizing wedge if we can show that mdma for ptsd has these specific benefits in these contexts um which is to say a clinical setting then we have to ask the broader question, well, are there other contexts in which they could also be safe and effective? And we're hoping that that down the line leads to uh, not looser regulations, but actually better regulations uh, for the legitimate uses, not just medical, but also spiritual and creative. Have you thought about the
1: other contexts at all? Uh,
5: In terms of what would happen um, if, if they were already legal for adult use, not a whole lot. We're pretty focused strategically on on, on getting these these studies done and what it would look like, for example, in a clinical context, how we would build the building, how we would train the therapist, uh, and how we would administer the therapy, and so on. We definitely support other organizations who are doing direct policy work and are trying to get the laws changed, but for now we're really just focused
3: on the clinical research. I wonder if in like 80 years, it'll be like a high school
5: program. <laughs> Mandatory. That would be incredible. Um, absolutely incredible. You know, we just, it's funny you should say that because just just today uh, landed in the MAPS office, the, the uh, printed version of our new MAPS bulletin, which is our triannual annual publication. Um, this edition is a special edition focused on psychedelics and education. So where a lot of our bulletins are just research updates um, talking about what we're doing currently, the special editions uh, have some more lasting material, more interesting, insightful articles about what's happening in the world of psychedelic research. And one of my favorite articles in there is an article by Ken Tupper, um, who's a researcher at the University of Victoria. Actually, he's a Canadian. Um, And uh, the article is titled Entheogenic Education, Psychedelics as Tools of Wonder and Awe. And what he's doing there is he's proposing a model um, a lot like we saw in Aldous Huxley's Island, um, which is a short novel, um, sort of the counterpoint to A Brave New World, whereas Brave New World is very much about, you know, what happens if our society is entirely run by drugs in this negative sense? Um, Island is an Aldous Huxley novel about what would happen if our society were entirely structured around drug experiences, but in a positive sense, in an educational sense. What if we took control of the drugs rather than the drugs taking control of us? So what Ken Tupper does in this article is he imagines a scenario where psychedelics are being used uh, in uh, early education, high school education, college education, where people are trained in what they are and how to use them. And talking about how that facilitates the sense of amazement and excitement and um, creativity and the belief in a potential for healing um, on one's own, um, you know, without the use of dulling drugs that could be really beneficial Mm. for our culture. So I think that is definitely something um, that can and should happen in the future because just, I mean, they're just such powerful tools. Um, and we, we, we need to educate each other about how to yeah, use I'd
1: like to just see mindfulness in schools. That would be a good start.
5: Yeah, that would be right. a good start. <laughs>
1: That'd be a great so, start. Is there, a, I've heard of people that have um, gone through physical healing or a lot of people that go down and do their ayahuasca journeys uh, looking to, to heal physically. You know, you heal, uh, sorry, you hear about uh, lucid dreaming healing things. Like, have you guys been able to see any, uh, effect on physical healing
5: at all? Let's see. We're looking... um, Well, actually, there's a couple of senses in which we could see it as physical healing. Um, First, with the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy work, uh, trauma or PTSD is increasingly being seen uh, as at least in part a neurological condition. I think... I I certainly think that any any efforts to abstractly separate uh, our experience from our neurology are misguided and are not going to lead us down a productive path, but rather seeing our experience and our neurology as inseparably intertwined. Um, That's where the productive science is going these days. And so when we're looking at PTSD, it's not just this difficult relationship that somebody has with their trauma. It's not just remembering it in a negative way. It's not just this pervasive fear that they sense. It's also a fundamental neurological rewiring that has happened, where in order to remember these difficult memories, the memory has to pass through the fear center of the brain. So everything that you remember from this traumatic past is actually processed by the fear center instead of by your logical, rational parts of your brain. It goes through the amygdala instead of your frontal cortex. Um, and MDMA, that's, that's working directly on the amygdala in addition to a number of other areas to reduce activity there. And so by re-remembering a difficult memory in the context of, of therapy under the influence of MDMA, next time you remember that memory it comes through a different pathway so instead of going through the fear center it'll go through your logical rational control centers and so you don't have this strong emotional challenging relationship and it gets better so that's the model that we're working with with mdma assisted psychotherapy where we actually get some rewiring in the brain of the neurons that's actually happening awesome Um, And another area we we see some level of physical healing, or at least we're starting to explore it, uh, is in the case of addiction treatment. Um, You mentioned ayahuasca. Um, Ibogaine is another naturally occurring, very powerful psychedelic that we're now looking at and other groups are now looking at for treating addiction, for providing an intense experience under uh, safe, controlled conditions uh, that enables people to open a window and sort of get through their addiction and and to provide a break from their addiction, to see it in a new light and then to make changes in their life. And it's unclear whether uh, that's happening as a result of of, uh, a direct action on the receptors in the brain and the body responsible for maintaining addiction or if that's because um, uh, people are seeing it in a new light. Probably it's a combination of both. The research there is a little bit too early to to say for sure. Uh, we've just completed some observational studies looking at ibogaine and ayahuasca treatment for cocaine and opiate addiction. Um, the ayahuasca study was in BC, um, and that was completed just last year and then also published.
3: Well, we know you're a, a real busy guy, Brad, and we'd really like to, to thank you for taking some time out of your afternoon to to come and chat with us. Um, before well, we you let guys. you go, um, for, for some of our listeners who maybe haven't gone gone too far down this stuff, um, other than the, the website, obviously, MAPS.org, um, where's a good spot for kind of the introductory course? Or where's a good place to start if you're kind of on the fence on whether say, psychedelics are good or bad? Where's uh, where's a good place to wet your feet?
5: Uh, well, I think it, th- th- there's other places on the on the web for sure, in addition to MAPS.org. Um, we also have MDMAptsd.org which is a more focused educational website, um, probably more accessible to mainstream audiences, also to members of the military and veterans administration. um, People who might have a more conservative approach, MDMAPTSD.org is really good um, to look at that treatment combination. Also, we're on Facebook and Twitter and we regularly share information, not just from us, uh, but also from other sources, putting psychedelics in a really uh, clear um, sort of no-nonsense light. Also, we have a lot of videos. We have over 100 videos from our Psychedelic Science 2013 conference, anywhere from 20 minutes to uh, six hours uh, that give insight into all sorts of different areas of psychedelic research. Um, That's psychedelicscience.org. And then today, uh, in collaboration with Evolver Learning Lab, we're starting our first-ever online webinar series. It's a five-course webinar series that starts at 5 p.m., Tonight and we'll be going uh until june 11th and people can sign up there it's called psychedelic science how to apply what we're learning to your life that's going to be going until june and that's also a great place to kind of get your feet wet and get a, an overview of psychedelic science it's, it's, uh, broad well, we'll, we'll make sure and
3: uh link to all that stuff in the show notes so everyone can check that out um thanks again brad and uh you're welcome back to America anytime
5: Uh, Thanks, Darren. Thanks, Graham. You know, uh, it's been a huge pleasure and I would love to come back on again soon. There's obviously a lot to talk about, a lot of different aspects. And um, yeah, it's a a perfect format. Thank you so much for the great conversation.
1: Welcome back to the America show.
3: Yeah, big thanks to Brad Burge for coming on the show. That was a fun one.
1: Yeah, I can't wait to get more into the spiritual aspect of that with him next time he comes on.
3: Part one of our uh, our double header here in America this afternoon. Um, yeah, that'll be good. Uh, like we we and Graham were talking uh, off air a little bit about maybe because he's expressed interest in coming back, so maybe we can turn him into uh, you know twenty minutes every two or three months and kind of bring us up to date.
1: Yeah, a little. Psychedelic Scientific Insider.
3: That's right. Scientific Psychedelic Insider. Yeah, sorry. Put that backwards. Either way is good, I think. Either way is acceptable.
1: Yeah, we want to thank Brad Birds a lot for coming on and talking about that. This is a fascinating area of, of research.
3: Yeah, and we'll link to all of that stuff in the show notes as usual, guys. You can check that out. Um, uh and Who we got up next in the doubleheader? I missed this interview, actually.
1: Yeah, you did. Yeah, we've got Ray Burhis who, who wrote this uh, this pretty good book called The Succession of Mill Valley. He talks a lot about uh, the separation of you know like the city from uh, the country.
3: Yeah, it's uh, a bit of a satire, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it really make it really makes you think. Like, is this a way that you could actually protest what's going on? Like, what if, what if somebody did get enough council members in a small town to say fuck this we're gonna leave the leave the united states like you know
3: yeah i missed this so uh my wife was uh, had a migraine that night so last minute i had to take here uh, the kids luckily that was uh the first day joe was in the studio helping us so he was able to kind of hold graham's hand uh when he went through it on his own so i'm hearing it for the first time well you guys are hearing it for the first time
1: yeah anyways it was a fascinating chat so we'll get we'll get the show on the road here with ray Buries.
3: yeah guys uh thanks for listening yeah we'll take a quick break and enjoy the chat
1: So howdy folks, welcome back to Gray America. We have Raymond Boris here tonight and he's going to be talking about his book Revolt: The Succession or Secession of Mill Valley. Now this is about should a city secede from America or could a city secede from America? Like how willing are you willing to how far are you willing to go to change a broken nation? These are some of the questions that Raymond will be answering with us tonight. Raymond's been a lawyer and a consumer advocate practicing out of San Fran, and he's been on the forefront of the battle against excessive power and greed for over three decades. He's a graduate of UC Berkeley's Bolt Hall, and he specializes in policyholder representation in cases involving the wrongful denial of long-term disability insurance claims. So Raymond's uh, background here fits right in with what we talk about in America. So we're happy to have you here, Raymond, to talk about... Uh, Your book and all kinds of political conspiracy. So, welcome to Gray America.
0: Well, thanks so much, and thanks to be here. I have to start by telling you something. There are like three people in the world that call me Raymond, which is my official name. John Garamendi, the insurance former insurance commissioner of California, now a congressman. Um, My mother called me Raymond. 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 (laughs) (laughs) And sister Mary Louise in grammar school nobody else calls me Raymond except for you. So you, you're you joining a very select group.
1: Oh, right on. Thanks, Ray. I will make sure I just call you Ray from now on. I don't want to make you feel oh, uncomfortable. No, okay.
0: No, you, <laughs> wouldn't you rather be in the select group with my mother? I mean, I, come on, you can't do any better.
1: Yeah, that's true. So, Ray, I started reading your book, and I have to be honest, I haven't made it all the way through. I just didn't have the time, but I'll tell you, I got hooked after the first chapter. So tell us a bit about your book, and then we're going to get into, like, whether that, the, uh, the the fictionality of your book could actually happen in real life.
0: All right. Well, I have to start out by saying that everybody always, you uh, know, my publicist and my friends and everybody says, you don't promote your books. You don't promote your books. you got to promote your book. And I never do it. I always get into discussions about the merits and so on. So I'm going to promote my book this time. Good, good. I'm going to say, okay, you can find it at com. R-A-Y, B like boy o u r h like Harry i f like Sam RayBorisAuthor.com dot com or Amazon.com. Uh, so there you go. Now yeah. I've done that. I can I can rest. Good. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and we're gonna have to do it again.
1: And we're gonna link to that all that all your websites and all that in the show notes. So when people get this podcast, they will have uh, direct links to all your stuff.
0: Okay. All right. That's fine. Um, all right. So. Um, What the book is about, I I really, after practicing law for and continuing to practice law, but having done so for 30 years, I've worked for Robert Kennedy way back in the 1960s. I was was appointed to oversee reforms in the California Department of Insurance. I had the pleasure of meeting Ed Bradley, um, he interviewed me for 60 minutes, who's one of the most remarkable people I've ever known. uh, I I've, I've I taught high school in Appalachia in Southeastern Ohio. So I've had a lucky life. I've just been one of those people that just have stumbled, literally stumbled, into things that have opened up opportunities and, and given me a chance to smile off and, and and have people sometimes hear some of it. Mm-hmm. So I feel very fortunate, it's just as unfortunate, to be interviewed by you. Because before we go any further, I have to tell you that what's left of the First Amendment Freedom of Speech, mm-hmm. uh, Freedom of Association, and so on, you guys in the talk show business are are the living embodiment of that principle, more so than anybody else in our society today. Not the newspapers, which are controlled by the multi-gazillionaires, not um, you know, uh, people who stand on soapboxes on, on Fifth Avenue in New York or uh, Times Square, but people who really have access to intelligent people who listen to your... Um, uh, programs and who listen and are interested. And my hat, I swear to God, is totally off to you. I think that what you're doing is so important, and I really want to congratulate you. It's exactly why I turned to writing instead of law to try to change the world. Mm -hmm. When I went to law school, we had people on the United States Supreme Court like Earl Warren, Brown versus Board of Education. Hello. We had... People on the United States Supreme Court, like William O. Douglas, a consummate environmentalist. We had people um, like Thurgood Marshall, who is you know the pillar of the civil rights movement, who was appointed by, I believe it was Lyndon Johnson, to the United States Supreme Court. We had giants on that court. It deserved to be called the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And now we have mental midgets <laughs> on that court, like Anton Scalia, who fancies himself an intellectual. If he's an intellectual... My yellow Labrador is an intellectual. Oh yeah, we got Scalia. We've got Clarence Thomas, who is a moron who never asks a single question. He's lucky to be on the court because he shouldn't be. Uh, we have it, it, Justice Kennedy's so-called swing vote, but he, but every time he turns around, you know, on, on the side of the uh, of, of the people who think it's okay for foreigners to buy American politicians, I want to just vomit. We've got people like Aaliyah, you know, who. Um, uh, words can't describe what what an idiot that man is. And these people were appointed to the United States Supreme Court, not for their intellectual capacity, not for their belief in America. They were appointed to the court because they would be the water carriers for the interest of the big business um, and billionaire community of the world. That's why they have said that money equals speech.
1: And, and they've uh, recently just said that, actually. They come out right and said that that is the way democracy is working, right?
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, they don't even hide behind the footsteps yeah, yeah. Of, of, of anything. They <laughs> no. can say, do you have enough money? Go ahead and buy American politicians. Do you want a congressman? Here's the money. Go buy one. Yeah. And that's exactly what people do. Right? It's disgusting. So I sat down and I... You know, back when I decided I wanted to go to law school, the reason I wanted to go was to change the world. Now, the way to change the world, if it's possible anymore, is through the mass media. Through writing, through movies, through talk shows, through influencing public opinion, through getting people to think for themselves. Because the bottom line is that the strength in this country, if there's any left at all, the strength is in the people. It's in their ability to say, wait a second, this is not right. We're not going to put up with this anymore. And unfortunately, the only way I've really seen that exercised in any effective way so far is in the, is in the context of turning out of office people who were guilty of sexual misconduct in office. People like that idiot from New York. Uh, you can tell I don't pull my punches. Um, a wiener. Oh, a perfect name for an idiot like himself or um, Elliot Spitzer. Uh, you know for the, all my Republican friends, okay, I'm sorry, Wiener and Spitzer are both Democrats. I'm like laying them out as the ones who are the poster children from are idiots and, and you know who are disavowed all their responsibility to public office. Yeah. And, um, you know, so if people are willing to throw out you know, into the trash heap of, of politicians, people who are guilty of sexual misconduct, I would certainly hope that they would also be willing to throw into that same trash heap people who are... Uh, bought and paid for by billionaires, by multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar uh, corporations and by foreign um, people who got their money. God knows how I would hope that that would happen. Couldn't you
1: argue though, that that it wasn't the people as much as the media and and blowing that shit out of proportion. Like I have a hard time still imagining that people can actually make the difference. Like we've had a couple of guests on talking about financial corruption and like economic hitman type stuff. And, some of them right. have been pretty positive about, hey, it's like we do have the power, but on the other hand, there's been a lot of you know, negativity about the system is so broken that we don't have the power to fix it.
0: Well, that's the basis for my book, It is the question of whether the system is so broken that it can't be fixed, or whether something can't happen that will stir people into, into action. I mean, look, when... When you realize that what it's about is people going into the ballot box and casting a vote, that's enough to give you hope. When you realize that they are manipulated by television ads, radio ads, newspaper ads, and big money, then you start losing that hope. The very idea that you can spend over a billion dollars in a presidential campaign, can Imagine Abraham Lincoln living in a world of billion He wouldn't have been elected. Some, Some oil baron would have been elected. Not Abraham Lincoln. We would have never experienced the presidency of Lincoln. We would have never experienced the leadership of Thomas Jefferson. We would have never won the Revolutionary War with George Washington. We would be wallowing in some country club someplace with some disgusting excuse for a human being that had nothing to offer to anything but money. And that's what we have allowed our political system to become. It is a disgusting, despicable, deplorable um, uh, evolution of the constitutional liberties and the Bill of Rights for which our revolutionary soldiers fought and died, not to mention the soldiers and the many more soldiers that died in the Civil War. So people have got to wake up. And I understand, I certainly understand, because I've got four kids of my own, I I understand that um, people have got a responsibility to raise their children, to pay their bills, to pay their mortgage, mortgages, to do the things necessary uh, in order to be able to um, be responsible, bill-paying members of society. And they don't have a whole hell of a lot of free time left over. Uh, sometimes you get to watch a sitcom on television, but that's about it. But people have got to realize that we're so blessed and we're so lucky in this country to have a system that allows people to control if only they choose to exercise it. And if they don't choose to exercise it, then it's up to people like you and it's up to people like me who really care about these issues to try to see if we can't characterize what it is that needs to be done in a way that effectively conveys it and and, uh, effectively brings about change.
1: I don't know. Do you think that, look, is, is the ballot box going to work? Like what, if, what if people vote in, like some, some people say that uh, it doesn't matter what, you know, wing is in or whatever, it's all part of the same beast, right? Like what if, what if people vote one guy out and it, the other guy's just as bad? I mean, is it really matter? Like I'm kind of cynical about the whole political system now, right? I don't know if our, if we have the power, even if we, if we protest, if we, have a revolution, whatever. It just seems to me like it's going to be shut down.
0: Well, uh, hopefully we're not going to have a revolution. Um, I just finished reading, and it was an exhausting read. I can't even imagine what it would be like to write it. 776-page book by Doris Kearns Goodwin on Abraham Lincoln, from which the movie of uh, Abraham Lincoln was made. You cannot read that book without just feeling a sense of complete devastation at the lives that were lost during the Civil War. I didn't realize that the saying was correct, that it was brother fighting brother, mm-hmm. that it was family fighting family. One of them on the side of the Confederacy, the other one on the side of of uh, the government. And it went on and on and on. One battle... You know, 27,000 people killed, another battle, 18,000 people killed on and on and on until Lincoln finally came around with the Emancipation Proclamation and ultimately the 13th Amendment to the Constitution and then the final battle that caused the surrender of uh, General Lee. And Lincoln, if he had not been assassinated, was the greatest friend of the South that they could have hoped for in the country because he understood the legitimate concerns of southerners, as well as the legitimate concerns of those in the north, but when you read that book, you don't ever want to see a civil war again. You don't yeah. ever want to see any kind of thing like what's going on, what used to be going on in Spain, you know, or in uh, the, the, the Russia, or in any part of the world where where civil disobedience and civil strife has taken over. So I don't believe in that. I, I you know, I, I have to say that Martin Luther King Jr., in my opinion, is just probably very naive and people are going to scream and holler when they hear this, but I think that Martin Luther King Jr. accomplished more for the Civil Rights Movement than the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And and you look at what happened and how people's minds and hearts were moved by what he did and what he stood for and by his eloquence and the way he delivered his dream. Mm -hmm. That is so much more powerful. So I think that that kind of nonviolent movement is powerful. I also think that humor is powerful. There's this guy right now, as you probably know, in in Egypt, a a surgeon of all things, who decided he wanted to be a political satirist, who's a comedian. Like, you know, like Sarah Palin uh, is a political comedian, or Tina Fey, (laughs) depending on how you want to look at it. Who's the comedian? But the point point is that... um, uh, at least, at least, Kinder tries to be a comedian. But the point is that, that uh, in reality, um, you know, you can, you can score more points with humor than you can by preaching on a soapbox. Mm-hmm. And you know, look at Will Rogers. Look at um, uh, Saturday Night Live. Look at uh, you know this guy in, in Egypt who if he was a political pundit would have been executed already. He would have been hung by the military junta or whatever they call themselves. Instead, he's poking fun front of them. He's being profiled on 60 minutes. He's being profiled on the Stewart program. He's becoming an, such an international hero that they can't touch him. Hmm. They have to lay off. And hmm. that's what humor does. It's devastating. It is devastating. It is devastating. I heard a but, story
1: about a, a country recently who was up for political and I, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but apparently some guy named Darth Vader put his name on the ballot and he's got more votes in the, in the pre thing than somebody else. So, or than everybody. (laughs) So who knows? I mean, this is humor at work, right? Like the system's so broken. Let's vote, uh, let's vote Darth Vader in. Right. So let's, let's get to your, this thing that's fascinates me because I've never really thought about it as a form of protest, but a city leaving the country of the United States. Could that actually happen? Or has it ever, has has anybody ever tried?
0: Well, West Virginia, sure. West Virginia, West Virginia happened. The Indian reservations happened. Liechtenstein happened. Um, Soviet Union morphing into Russia happened. Um, Polynesia, all over Polynesia, it's happened with little islands here and there and the other place. Um, You know, taking just the American Indian reservation example, uh, they have their own autonomy. They make their own rules. You know, they're kind of, they have they have to obey some rules. They can't do things that, you know, I guess they can't use their peyote to kill people or whatever they can't do. But the reality is that they are pretty autonomous. If they yeah. want to gamble, they gamble. And, I mean, that's one example. And it's a different situation, I think, than what we're talking about. But my book is not so much about how you can do it. It's not about how you can set up a country out of a city, out of a county, out of a, out of a state that literally secedes from the union and has its own government and no longer is part of the United States of America. That's not what my book is about. I mean, that's what, it's, that's what it talks about. But what it's really about is how do we solve this problem? How do we raise the level of bought and paid for politicians to the level of public accountability and sensitivity, so that we can reform the system as it exists. One of the ways to do that is to scare the Dickens. I haven't used that word since I was in high school. <laughs> to scare the Dickens out of um, the established politi- politicians, people who um, whose career careers, whose careers are dependent upon. Um, keeping things as they are. Every member of Congress is a member of Congress because he's able to raise millions of dollars. Otherwise, the people who are running against him as third-party candidates would take those seats, and the people who are members of Congress would go open pizzerias someplace, which is probably the best that they can do for their intellectual capacity. And (laughs) the reality is that um, if, if you're going to try to change the system, you have to awaken the American public, the sleeping giant, the power that people really have, you have to make them understand that they are in charge, that they do not have to vote for the guy with the Daffy Duck commercial on television. They don't have to be subjected to the big ads and the big money and the big campaigns and have to just vote for the incumbent because that's the person, the man or the woman, that's able to raise the most money. That's not what the whole concept of a government of and by and for the people is about. That's not what our constitution is about. That's not what our bill of rights is about. That's not what anything is about in this country. And the minute people realize that, and they organize themselves not to find not to form splinter groups of one kind or another. We're in favor of gun control, we're against gun control, we're in favor of abortion, we're against abortion, we believe in evolution, we think evolution is horse manure, whatever it is, those are minor issues. The major issue is who controls our system, who controls our government. Do we really want Anton Scalia and his corrupt cronies of the United States Supreme Court to tell drug lords in Mexico that they can contribute to American elections and can buy American members of Congress. Do we want to do that or not? Now if Scalia and his cronies say, this is a constitutional right. It's Freedom of speech. It so happens that I've got a billion more votes than you do because I've got a billion more dollars than you do. And so I've got a billion more, uh, PowerPoints and my freedom of speech um, uh, uh, arsenal than you do. Do we really want that to govern the country? What are we going to do about that? Well, in Lincoln's day, you passed the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, but you had to have the support of Congress to do that, and you're never going to get the support of Congress to do that with respect to something like campaign finance contribution laws, amending the constitution so that you would be permitted to restrict campaign contributions. Why? Because the people in Congress and the Senate are holding their office based on the current system, the existing system. Why would they vote to vote themselves out of office? Yeah. So, you know, Sean Cogan in my book thinks through all of that. And he says to himself, Jesus, you know, okay, what can I do? What can anybody do? And he said, the only thing we can really do is to issue a vote of no confidence, to embarrass and humiliate these pontificating SOBs who have taken over our political system, to render them impotent in their efforts, and to take back our government. And so what's going to happen? He's going, to, if, if something happens and, and you've got to read the book to see how it unfolds. And, 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 in the book, I hope that your readers, I'll uh, try your listeners read it. Um, because I really want to know what their cake is on it. I want to know what their thoughts are about it. I want to know if it changes their perspective on any of this and if so in what way. Mm-hmm. And if they want to say that I'm full of it and that I, you know, I'm barking up the wrong tree. I need to know that too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't just need to hear a bunch of, people saying, Oh, Ray, you're just great. This is a great idea. I need to I need to hear the other side of that as well. And um I, I hope that people read it. Because what happens in, and I'm not gonna give you the last chapter. No. But what I'll, I'll tell you this much, what happens in the last chapter of Revolt is um Sean Cogan's girlfriend uh says to him at the end, My God, is this what you had in mind all along? Yeah. <laughs> And he won't answer the question. He says, he says, no, like Dr. Marx, I never tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it.
1: So what do you think about, about, uh, it being more than a, a U.S. political sort of money grab problem. And it's more about uh, a global conspiracy of like, what do you think about people that talk about the Illuminati and these, uh, you know, this sort of shadow elite controlling things from more of an international level.
0: Well, it is international because money is international, right? Yeah. Um, Can you imagine me going to Saudi Arabia and preaching to try to convince, convince people there that women ought to have the right to drive a car. (laughs) Okay. It's like, that's an ally. That's Saudi Arabia, our ally. (laughs) Yeah. Hello. Okay, what about China? You know, biggest population of any place in the world, and they just do whatever the hell they want to do. They haven't changed since Tiananmen Square. If they want to roll people over, they're rolling over. How Putin mm-hmm. in Russia? You think that that's a glowing example of freedom? I don't think so. The United States is certainly a glowing beacon of light in comparison to these people. So, and Obama would have to be a shining example of that. And at least he, at least he tried to give everybody health care insurance. I look at that health care insurance law and I say, wait a minute, wait a minute, do you realize that the Supreme Court has said that if you get your health care insurance or your disability insurance in the workplace, you have no right against an insurance company, you have no right to sue them, even if they try to defraud you and misrepresent your policy coverage and refuse to pay benefits that are clearly owed for cancer treatment or whatever. You can't even go against them if you lose your house, Hmm. if you lose your life savings. That is the law. That is called pilot right versus veto. Mm. It is called of preemption and nobody even knows about it. Mm. So under Obamacare, a lot of people are going to get more and more insurance in the workplace and that's what's going to happen to people. Mm. So I mean, I don't know. I mean, th- that being said, and given the fact that I, I personally feel that healthcare is a human right, not a, a right of citizenship. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and given that, You know, how do I feel about Obamacare? How do I feel about Obama? I mean, I I met with Barack Obama in his Senate office for over an hour, six months before he declared for president, when Ted Kennedy set me up with an appointment with him because Ted uh, endorsed my first book, Insult to Injury. If you you can look it up, Mm insulttoinjury.org, and you'll see his endorsement book. So he set me up with a meeting with Obama, and I went in and met with him. It was supposed to be a 15-minute meeting and lasted for over an hour. The guy is smarter than whip obviously, mm-hmm. but I said to him, look, a risk of preemption is a big problem. People are getting screwed. Not only does it affect working people, but it affects their families and their children and they have no rights and therefore they have no leverage to simply get an insurance company to do what it's required to do under the law, you know? And he got it. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'll never forget. He said to me, the problem is that you never pass anything in, in this town. If it's opposed by the insurance lobby, they run the town. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number two, we've got a Republican in the White House. And he's not going to do anything that runs contrary to big business. So, of course, time went on. And he said, things change, you know, call me. And things changed, And he got elected president. And I called him. And, of course, I didn't get a return telephone call. <laughs> the next thing I knew, Obamacare. I knew Obamacare came down with nothing. Not a word. Not a word to resolve the ERISA preemption problem that I've been talking about. So that's the political system. That's what we live with. Those are what the lobbyists are able to do to our system. That's how the billionaires have controlled our entire political process. That's why we have got a country that's up by and for the billionaires, no longer up by and for the people. That's why I wrote this book.
1: So you've been doing this for decades now, Ray, like fighting this battle. Have you seen it shift at all? Is it it getting... Is it getting, uh, where, where are we going here? Is it getting worse? Is it getting better? Is the information age, the internet helping? Or are the is the power elite starting to clamp down more?
0: Well, good question. I really hope that the internet is going to make things better. And theoretically, it can. But you know what? The money always governs, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, you know, along comes a movement like the Tea Party that says we need more representation of the people. Along comes a movement like like the Wall Street movement.
1: Um, Occupy, what was it Wall called? Occupy, I'm sorry, Occupy, right? Occupy Wall Street. Is that what you're yeah, talking Occupy about?
0: Occupy Wall Street. So what happens when you turn around and you do the flash of a, of a, of a moment, somebody has got people defecating in public parks and destroying the reputation yeah, of yeah. Occupy Wall Street. Okay. Do I really think that that person, that idiot that made international headlines is <laughs> doing that? No. Do so <laughs> I think he was a member of Occupy Wall Street? No. Yeah. Do I think Occupy Wall Street should have their reputation destroyed because somebody was able to plant that person? No. Did it happen? Yes. All right. That's The same thing happened. I'm old enough to remember what happened during the Vietnam War. People used to joke that the FBI was behind every mailbox, <laughs> that they were infiltrating the movement. They infiltrated, I have no lost love for the Black Panthers, but they infiltrated the Black Panther Party. They infiltrated the, uh, the Civil Rights Movement with Martin Luther King Jr., J Edgar Hoover ran after Martin Luther King Jr. and tried to uh, uh, upset his whole family. You know, downloading information about affairs that he was having with people. You know that that is the way that the American political system works, and it's all the way from the earliest times that I've just talked about to the present time. So, do I think that things are going to be able to change? I think that it, when when people like you I mean that sincerely. When people like you are able to to get together the opinions of the American public and wake up that sleeping giant, hmm. we are going to see a nonviolent change in the way things are done that will absolutely be the best thing that could ever happen to this country economically as well as politically.
1: Hmm. It is interesting how I, we can we can gather together whoever we want as authors or people talking about, you know, fringe subjects, stuff that the mainstream won't talk about. We can do these interviews and then put it out for anybody in the world to listen to, really. It is kind of, uh, it's an interesting time.
0: It's an interesting time. And look at, if you were to make a list on, uh, on one hand of the most important movements that have taken place in the last couple of centuries, would the civil rights movement be one of them? Yeah. Would Gandhi be one of them? Yeah. Okay. Now, probably some violent movements would be among them as well, like the labor movement that resulted in a lot of people being bit and beaten in, in some of the wars, like the civil war. But the point is that right alongside the violent movements, the nonviolent movements have enormous power because they can speak to people's hearts. Yeah. They can, they can make people like my parents, Sit back and say, "Wait a second. Okay, maybe we're wrong." I mean, I, I'm old enough that I can remember when people thought that if you had a black person working at Tiffany's, uh, that they would that customers wouldn't come into the store. Can you imagine such a disgusting concept in the in the world that we live in today? And that was it in my generation. I remember going down to South Carolina in my lifetime mm-hmm. and seeing restrooms blacks only, whites only. Yeah. I remember what it took for for the people to be able to have uh, the voting rights.
1: Yeah, even women's I rights.
0: Mean, women's rights. Absolutely. How long was it how long ago was it that women couldn't even vote in this country? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so change is possible. Yeah. Change is, is possible and that should give hope to everybody to hear and to be reminded of that, you don't have to have bullets in order to bring about meaningful, serious change. What you have to do is you have to get, you have to, you have to wake people up. You have to make them the moderates, not the crazies, not the, not the people that are going to create ha- havoc and chaos, Right. but people who are normal people to understand, okay, okay, okay. Enough is enough. We don't need any more billionaires making our rules. Yeah, but, yeah. Okay. And that's
1: it. Yeah. Huh.
0: Yeah, well, we're... So, we're go ahead. I'm so, I, I was just going to say, so revolt is a, a way to try to impose a humorous twist on that that would kind of pay, make people pay attention. That's what I'm hoping will happen from it. And, you know, that's
1: it.
6: Yeah,
0: well,
1: that's that's a good story. I, I'm looking forward to finishing off the book, and, and uh, we'd really like to, to uh, thank you for coming on the show, Raymond. Uh, was there anything else you want to mention to us? I mean, we're going to link to all your your websites, all your previous books, and uh, everything in the show notes. So, was there anything else you'd like to discuss?
0: Well, only that my publicist, Ted Booth is always going to get mad at me for not asking for a copy of the interview before she can so she can use it to get other interviews. <laughs> ah, yes, yes. So, if there's some way you can do that and send it to me, my my email address for all of your listeners as well is R like Ray, F like Frank. Be like boy, O-U-R-H-I-S at gmail.com.
1: righty, good. Hey, I do have I do have one quick question that I want to ask you. It's probably not a quick question, but it's about all this uh, this NSA spying, uh, the CIA versus NSA, this Edward Snowden thing. I kind of don't want to just right. leave that out there because you're kind of involved in all this stuff. And I'm interested to know your take on whether I've heard people talk about this being more of a CIA versus NSA battle than actually like a, a real true whistleblower thing happening. I mean, do you have any personal takes on what's going on with the the spying on our, our citizens or your citizens or the world's well, citizens?
0: I, I do. Yeah. I mean, again, I grew up in an era where privacy was a big issue and people were afraid of telephone taps and that sort of thing. And now with the internet, everybody claims everybody knows everything about everybody else. <laughs> If you apply for a mortgage, you have to put down all kinds of financial information. If you have healthcare, you have to list all of your medical conditions and so on and so forth. And people go, well, yeah, everybody knows it anyway. Um, I I don't buy it. I think that it's one thing for a private corporation to try to amass information about someone's credit worthiness. It's another thing for the government to be able to build dossiers on people. Mm -hmm. It scares me. Um, when I think of Snowden my first reaction was very negative what is this person doing you know how dare he you know now the longer that I think about it the more I see some of the revelation revelations that have come out as a result of what he's done the guy is either nuts or he's the biggest hero hmm. in modern time and the Washington press corps recently awarded him some kind of an award they were afraid to do it because it's so politically um, uh, contagious. Mm-hmm. But they awarded him some kind of an award, a First Amendment award or something like that. And my God, I wouldn't have the guts to do that. I don't know a hell of a lot of people would. They, they are just saying, okay, I'm going to leave the country. I'm going to live someplace else. I'm going to risk being in jail for God knows how many years. God only knows what's going to happen to me and to my family when I do this. And he did it. Um, I guess the real heroes. Some of the people who are the real heroes of our society are people who are willing to gamble at all uh, and risk uh, the, the worst thing that, things that can happen. Robert Kennedy is my hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to work for him because I couldn't believe what he had done during the apartheid crisis, what he did with Jimmy Hoffa, what he did with the construction trades unions when blacks were not able to uh, secure positions in the construction trades, mm-hmm. on and on and on. After his brother was assassinated, he really decided the purpose of life is not to just be comfortable. And I just, I love that guy so much. (laughs) Um, And everything that he represented. And um, so you have to be willing to pull out the stops, I guess, a little bit at least. You have to be willing, at the very least, to say, my life is important. My, you know, poker game on Friday nights is important. My um, paying my bills is important, but I got to spend a little bit of time and some attention on what's happening in the broad pe- picture to my country. Hmm. And the irony of this is, when you talk about secession, the temptation is to think that that's like being a traitor. But when you talk about secession, what you're really talking about is bringing the country back to its roots, to what it is before the billionaires took over. <laughs> yeah, 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 and you know, so. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I hope that people try to find a way to use a mechanism such as a vote of secession. Which, by the way, the Republican Party in Wisconsin in today's newspaper—have you seen it? No. They—they're fighting the the one segment of the Republican Party is fighting with another segment of the Republican Party because one of them wants Wisconsin to secede from the union. It's like hello. I mean. That's like a publicity stunt for my book. (laughs) (laughs) So is is Putin. I should write a thank you note to Putin because he's a publicity stunt for my (laughs) book, but it's not what I intended. Good timing. Um, You know what I mean? So anyway, I hope that that's a roundabout way of answering your question. Yeah, yeah, it is. Maybe it's
1: not. No, 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 it is. I mean, what I think about that is that uh, after hearing you say that is maybe the heroes will be – Maybe we will know after some time, like 20, 30 years. I think it's one of those things that the future will tell us a lot about what really happened during this time. I'm hoping anyways.
2: Yeah, and you never know.
0: You absolutely never know.
1: All right, Raymond. Well, thanks you- a lot.
0: Okay, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Don't forget to send my publisher the copy of the paper. Right. She's going to kill
1: me. We'll do that, buddy. <laughs> hey, I know okay. it was really busy. I want to thank you for uh, making the time tonight to, to come on the show.
0: Absolutely, my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Folks, welcome back to the grim America Show.
3: Yep, uh, that was our chat you, with Ray. Yeah, how'd you guys enjoy the double header? That was good. The Brad Ray.
4: Yeah. yeah, I liked it a lot.
1: Yeah, it he's, got me thinking.
4: Yeah, and it makes you wonder how many other people might be thinking the same thing that he's writing about.
1: Something. Wow, ah, it's kind of a good way to <laughs> to get the message out there too, right? By a fictional kind of satire book, right? Because people kind of think it's real and it sounds real. And really gets people thinking.
3: That's kind of how it starts, right? Yeah. Usually you have to, like, say, oh, it's just a joke.
1: Like science fiction. Just a joke. That's how science fiction
3: becomes reality. Star Trek becomes reality? Yeah, That's it right.
4: starts as a joke, and then they start to implant things into your mind. That's
1: how we got iPhones.
3: I couldn't get Star, Star Trek car seats for my truck, so I had to get Darth Vader ones.
1: Yeah, I was wondering about that.
3: I wonder what you get for Star Trek, just like a Captain, a little communicator on it so i don't know uh i don't think this is something we'll do too much uh the double headers we kind of had two short interviews so we figured why not slab them together
1: yeah we'll do it every once in a while
3: so of course we'll link to uh all the stuff we did. graham talked about with ray in the in the show notes um all the music you heard
1: yeah yeah thanks for listening
3: Thanks for listening. It's uh, still
1: Spamgram month.
3: So yeah, it's still it's Spamgram year. Twenty fourteen is Spamgram year.
1: <laughs> A14 is my number too. So
3: is it? Yeah. Lucky number. Yeah. Theron Flurry. Yeah, because you're both short. Yeah. Thought so.
1: That wasn't really why though, but it just happened oh. to be that way.
3: Yeah. Um, and of course, uh, big thanks to our Money Bomb winner. We talked to a little bit earlier. Of course, you guys want to get on the Money Bomb? Head to uh, grammerica.ca/slash/MoneyBomb. Um, As usual, review us on iTunes and tell your friends. Tell your friends about Gray America.
1: Yeah, we're going to need some more contributions. Otherwise, we're just not going to cover any expenses. We're just going to end up giving the money back.
3: Which ain't so bad. True that. But.
1: So, yeah, my email is graham at grandamerica.com.
3: Yeah, spam the shit out of it. Thanks for listening, guys. Check out the show notes and we'll see you next week.